forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported by its listeners, and we have a couple new supporters to thank this week, Pam Grossman from The Witch Wave and Lucy Harris. Thank you so much to them and to everyone else who subscribes and supports this podcast and helps keep it going. If you would like to join them, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual in exchange for a small monetary donation. You get access to bonus episodes, exclusive writings, a tote bag, all the usual Patreon things. Go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. The subject matter of this week's podcast is one that I like to rant about, and that is class prejudice in the publishing industry. It's a systemic problem, and yet it's not as widely discussed, I think, as some of publishing's other diversity issues. And yet I do feel like it is at the root of some of these other issues, including its horrible history of gatekeeping, but also who's allowed to tell what stories. So this week, we are talking with Alexis Aceves Garcia, a genderqueer Latinx Indo-Chinese poet who recently left an indie press because of affordability issues of working within the industry. I found Alexis through a tweet about Lauren Stein and the Paris Review years ago, and it's been in the back of my mind since I read it. So today we are going to discuss class issues, education issues, and how these issues of a diversity create a hostile environment for writers who aren't of a certain race, educational background, and socioeconomic reality. You and I met because of a tweet, um, because you had tweeted back when the Paris Review was uh, spiraling because Lauren Stein had been um, allowed to resign rather than be fired for his uh, sexual misdeeds, Mm. which, by the way, I'm still upset about that he resigned rather than fired because it means that the um, investigation was never concluded or became public, which allowed him to control how bad he looked. Um, Mm. But anyway, um, but uh, then there was a sort of sub conversation going on about how the parish review outside of Lauren Stein is a problem. Um, And you had tweeted that Lauren Stein had said um, that in order to get an internship at the Paris Review, one had to have an Ivy League education, which is one of those things where I always thought, I always knew was true, but I never thought anybody said out loud. <laughs> right. You'd think. You would think that he would be burned alive in a, in a square or something, but um, apparently we don't do enough of that anymore. But um, mm. so, yeah. So can you sort of uh, give the um, context around how that statement was even made and where and what you were doing there and all that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I came to New York in 2014 to attend the Summer Publishing Institute at NYU. 
which was a six-week intensive publishing course um, with three weeks devoted to uh, diving deep into the book publishing industry and three weeks devoted to um, giving context into the magazine industry, which just meant a long, long uh, 10-hour days worth of different panels um, with people talking about various parts of the industries. Um, and it was basically 110 early 20-somethings thirsty to get our hands on an entry-level job anywhere mm -hmm. uh, within publishing. And there was only one panel during the six weeks um, where a speaker would be talking about literary magazines. And it just so happened to be Lauren Stein uh, talking about the Paris Review. And um, I was really excited because during my time at San Francisco State, uh, I had done a project about my editorial aesthetic and and it was the first time I thought about it in terms of literary magazines and thinking about myself as an editor and also a writer. Um, and I looked to the Paris Review as an example, so I felt kind of creatively uh, connected to it. Um, of course, I couldn't afford uh, <laughs> a subscription to the Paris Review as a college mm -hmm. student, so I got them secondhand um, at a thrift store. but. I got uh, there early. Um, it was in the Woolworth building downtown um, where all of our the panels were. I sat in the front row and inevitably someone would ask the question, but it, today, that morning, it was me, um, what it took um, to be an intern at the Paris Review, in which Lauren Stein, without skipping a beat, said, in Ivy League education, um, and needless to say, I was kind of a heartbroken state school alumni mm -hmm. <laughs> until I found out it was a 40 hour a week, full-time unpaid internship, um, which I truly could not afford to do. And, um, that kind of made it clear that why he mentioned that Ivy League comment, because, uh, I mean... I don't know. I just could. I, I couldn't afford to to do it. Um, and some Ivy Leaguers, I'd hope, could. I, I don't know. Uh, it's also a clearly continuing to groom certain folks um, to be critics. Um, and within, you know, the Paris Review as an organization. Mm -hmm. And so, what does that? I mean, hearing something like that. Um, from the editor of the Paris Review, like, how does that make mm -hmm. you feel about, how did that make you feel about publishing as a whole and sort of your ability to exist there? Right. I mean, as a 23 year old gender queer Latinx Indo Chinese poet, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, my odds weren't, you know, who also, you know, first generation can't hardly afford. I mean, to be in New York to begin with, um, kind of created a, it was kind of a no brainer that it, it wasn't my path. Um, and that it would be something I'd encounter more and mm -hmm. along the way, um, in my journey than that six week, um, intensive, uh, institute could ever prepare me for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's something sort of weirdly, you know, representative about the Paris Review, too, mm. because it sort of harkens back to um, the sort of image of what a writer is um, mm. uh, in the sense of, you know, like the the lost generation in Paris, which is 
is so tied into the fantasy of what we think of when we think of like a, an important writer is and you know Hemingway and uh, Fitzgerald and all those fuckers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think the Paris Review sort of cultivates that that fantasy of this is what it takes to be a writer. This is what the the writing life is like that I think is so dominant within within publishing within MFA culture. You know all of these sorts of. Um, you know, the, the, the fantasy that takes over a 23 year old who doesn't know what the actual reality is of, um, trying to build a career, trying to gain access, um, and sort of idealizing something like the Paris Review until you realize, oh no, it's actually incredibly systemically racist, classist, mm. <laughs> misogynist, um, and, right. and against like, you. It's not you. It's the system. Again, mm -hmm. it's like, it's not like, and also that, that six week, one of the best things that could have happened to me in that six week course was that I got to sat, sit down with an HR rep from Condé Nast mm -hmm. who looked at my resume and helped me edit it. Like, what? Like, I could have <laughs> never, like, how could I have even had the tools to like understand what it took to be in publishing on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, like it would have never worked. I, I, I doubt I would be in, in, in publishing now or, you know, just recently got out of it again, if I didn't have six weeks of a foundation, but still again, not prepared, you know, mentally or emotionally for what I was going to encounter along the way. Um, because it's not the dominant narrative, unfortunately, um, of publishing, you know, it's like, here's a systemic problem that we've had for years. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, shouldn't we like look at our shit instead of <laughs> <laughs> like putting it on anyone else? Um, so yeah. And what made you want to go into publishing in the first place? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, <sighs> I went into book publishing because uh, I wanted to dedicate my life to like building another world, so to speak. Like at the time, like um, before I was in book publishing, I was stuck in a nonprofit with, uh, you know, no real promise of uh, promotion. Mm -hmm. um, and on top, you know, a tale as old as time. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, I was doing all of their social media during the 2016 election, which made me truly want to transcend my human form. <laughs> um, still finding a way to transcend my human form in everyday situations. Um, and as a poet, I thought, well, the only thing I could like really devote my life to like could be books. I mean, at the end of the day, making a book is like one of the least evil things you could do in capitalism. Um, I thought, um, <laughs> but I guess when you're like then exposed to all the politics around something that you love, nothing can really prepare you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you had been sort of, I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking this is because uh, I, I started, you know, a literary magazine when I was 23 years old in this total naive way of being like, people who make books must be really good people, right? Like they're, they're <laughs> devoting their lives to art. Like they must be smart and compassionate 
and um, interesting. And then uh, I, I I met them. <laughs> so I, I guess, um, do you feel like you you had sort of like stepped into this realm in a in a slightly naive way? Oh, absolutely! Oh my God! Like I mean, and also like you know, coming out of nonprofit and into book publishing, it almost feels like having like an ex that was like terrible. Mm -hmm. And then the next person you have is like slightly better, but still problematic. And and, like you, except it's a longer, um, you know, it's, it's, it's for the long haul. You're like realizing it as you're in it and you're already optimistic maybe about a new opportunity. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, you're not thinking about it as much, or maybe like a part of me wanted to believe that I could, change some of it mm-hmm. um and that i was on a route or path somewhere um but ultimately there were three reasons i left which one i i couldn't afford to stay in the industry um you know when a friend of mine reached out about a job outside of publishing that was more pay, more vacation days, better benefits, and I would have a woman of color as a boss. Mm-hmm. I couldn't say no to interviewing. <laughs> it's like it checked every single box for me and reflected back everything I currently didn't didn't have and may never have in book publishing if it um continues on in the shape that it is. Um and and two like working in book publishing as it stands now and being the type of writer I am doesn't really align. Um, like I'm a, again, a first generation gender queer Latinx and Indo Chinese poet. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of my work deals with capitalism and migration and queerness and investigating America through my identity. Like both of my abuelitos were braceros. They were part of the bracero program and my father's mother migrated from Timor um, to Australia and magically to Mexico City, um, where she met my grandfather. I mean, I come from quite a few migrations and a history of working in this country for citizenship. Mm-hmm. So I think inherently I'm like always thinking about who I'm working for in a different way. Um, and I cross a lot of diversity boxes for a company. Um, and I need to be careful and protective of myself in the workplace, especially when upper management is, is white. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in an industry like book publishing, where, you know, according to the publisher, Publishers Weekly um, <laughs> diversity survey train wreck, um, in the year of our Lord, 2018, um, only 14% of folks in the industry identify as African-American, Native American, mm-hmm. Alaskan Native, Asian, Hispanic, Latino, Middle Eastern, or multiracial, um, using their language. Um, and that's a percentage that's up from 2014, where 89% of the industry was yeah. white. Yeah. That's four years, and that's all your, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a conversation that has been happening, so I just have a hard time, like, like, I don't know, like believing that it can't do better. Um, 
And I think the third and final point of me leaving was I did way too much emotional labor surrounding diversity. Um, it was clear that upper management had not attended diversity and inclusion training, um, which fundamentally I think prevents a business from moving forward and fully understanding what diversity means for them. And which oftentimes put me in a position to do work around white privilege that I would have preferred not to do, mm-hmm. which is putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you sort of entered publishing at the peak of the, the sort of, um, raising awareness about the lack of diversity in publishing, which is something that had been sort of grumbled about for a very long time, mostly um, just on the um, the side of uh, gender uh, for a long time. But th- it started sort of erupting into the larger conversation, you know, starting probably about eight or nine years ago and then just sort of getting louder and louder. Um, but it seems like that conversation hasn't led to actual change. Um, you know, even in the sense of the writers who are being published, there does seem to be some surface level diversifying um, racially, but not necessarily... I guess what, like when I was doing the research for the piece, I, w- I was um, for the piece about um, class prejudice in the publishing industry. I w- was going through, okay, who has won the National Book Award and who's won the Pulitzer in the last 10, 15 years. And while there is mm. definitely a, um, a more diverse racially uh, crowd of writers they all go to Dartmouth. Like I, I looked up like every single person's mm. educational background mm. and it, it's all East coast. It's all Ivy league. It's all um, elite education. That's who's winning the award. So it does seem like this very sort of surface level diversification, but also I think in publishing and you can sort of correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm not sort of directly involved in it anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm, I might be, but it does seem like, the diversity that has been happening is sort of like stuck in these sort of low level um, positions um, that have high Mm -hmm. turnover and don't have um, uh, high salaries. So it's just like, here, do our social media, (laughs) like present, present the brown face to, to the world so that we look like we're suddenly diverse. Uh, where the positions of power are all still white. But you can tell me if I'm wrong about that. No, I mean, I think that that was definitely part of my experience. And also just interns of color, never those roles never turning into full-time positions for them. But, you know, as advertised, or maybe the case is that a lot of other interns were hired. And, um You know, I think that that's still very true that oftentimes it becomes because mentorship is a serious problem in publishing Um, before. Also, like when I was thinking about going into book publishing, I became a Representation Matters mentee Mm -hmm. Um, and Representation Matters pairs you with two uh, mentors, one that's more of a senior level in publishing and another that is more uh, entry to junior level. And I had the pleasure of having two women of color um, tell me about their experiences. Um, 
and in part prepare me for salary talks uh, that, you know, by sharing kind of their experience with with how they've been paid, because I think that's a serious part of mentorship that isn't pressed upon enough, especially in an industry like book publishing, where book publishing is not the most lucrative mm-hmm. career path. Um, and on top of there being diversity issues, then you have um, folks getting stuck in an entry level. If you can get an entry level job, if it's not already taken by someone in the company's friend who, um, you know, is more likely part of the 86% than the 14% Mm -hmm. um, of people of color and black folks in publishing. And um, yeah, I mean, a lot of folks come into publishing with MFAs or from other publishing houses. And if you've gotten your MFA, you've already had to endure the shit show that is academia and loans and your writing being Mm -hmm. judged um, by the by, the folks it might not be writ- written for um, more often than not. And if you're coming from other publishing houses, chances are you're white. Um, and so, you know, and it's also like if upper management aren't people of color, and I'm not saying just your direct, like, I'm not saying like folks that aren't your direct boss, like your direct boss should also have a hand in mentoring you. I mean, it's not up to the other, it shouldn't be up to the other people of color within the company to mentor you if they're not your direct Mm -hmm. boss. Like maybe somewhat because we all have a responsibility as people of color to, to um, be mentors in that space. Like the mentors, well, I believe at least like the mentors were, we didn't have the luxury of having in every single job. Um, But again, like let's put blame where blame is due. And that's the whole structural bullshit that is book publishing and who gets to gatekeep these stories. So what do you think um, good mentorship that's needed within publishing? What do you think that looks like? Yeah, I think it's um, first of all, just like getting to know you as more of a human being. I feel like people of color most often than not like have a foundation from which to understand each other that maybe I do not have with a white person um, who's in upper management um, just because we're all coming into work with our identities and, you know, we don't have the luxury of thinking about it when it becomes a marketing Mm -hmm. tactic um, or something we have to address, um, you know, for our jobs. Like it's something we address every single day of our lives inside and outside of work. Um, So I think that's, that's key is like, first of all, getting to know who is working for you or who's working in the company that you could perhaps speak a little bit frankly about your experience at the company and um, listen, um, actively listen, not, um, you know, not listen defensively, or I feel like, you know, advocate for, um, and, and, you know, listen frankly, and also like protect the folks of color from um, other folks who uh, are in the company that don't really relate to them. um, Or just like, a great mentor also like speaks on your behalf in some ways um, to other folks so that you can do less labor, hopefully. Um, that's always the goal, right? I mean, in, in you know, situations where you're uh, the most diverse person around, um, it's good to have an advocate on your team. And if that's not, that's not present for you, 
how how do you move mm-hmm. forward? Um, you keep reaching out to people who don't exactly know how to speak to you or you're doing mental gymnastics to kind of respect everyone's identity when no one's doing mental gymnastics to respect yours in in the capacity mm-hmm. that they could be. And is that one of the reasons why you didn't go into an MFA program? Somewhat. I mean, I, I want to be conscious of who's critiquing my work. I think my work deserves that. Um, and I feel like academia won't give me that satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm looking for, I'm really truly looking for the space and the time to give to my work. Um, and community is important, but I think I can build a mindful community that are generous readers and give me constructive feedback than just having, you know, being put together in a room with others that perhaps aren't coming to my work in the same, um, in the Mm -hmm. same way. Um, if, if, if I had the choice, so I, I, I'm definitely conscious of that. And I also feel like, you know, MFAs. I mean, how do you feel about MFAs? <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I think it's just a new level of exclusivity uh, and gatekeeping mm. because I think you have to be, I mean, you have to be a certain person in order to get into an MFA um, as a, as somebody who didn't finish college. Um, it's uh, obviously immediately uh, unavailable to me. Um, Mm. and also somebody who can, uh, who can afford to take two years out of the workforce, um, if that's a specific kind of person. Um, and so I think that people don't criticize it enough on a sort of, uh, in a, in a structural way. I think people just say, oh, well, it creates bad writing and whatever. Um, which I, 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 I also (laughs) kind of think, but, um, but I, I also think sort of it leads to a sort of professionalization of writing that I think is sort of um, mm. detrimental to to uh, the literary culture. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's the being um, a college dropout is in this uh, in this field is really kind of funny. I gave an interview to a guy who's writing a book about not going to college. I mean, of course he's, and he teaches at fucking Yale or Harvard or one of them. Uh, And, uh, but he, so he's like, well, what is, how is, how is higher education failing certain demographics, whatever. And he asked me, uh, why did you drop out of college? Um, And I told him, well, look, I was in a really fucked up family situation um, and they were the only way that I could get out of it was I had to leave college. Um, and that had never crossed his mind. He, he had thought mm. of it as being a choice. Like I had, like I had decided, Oh, I don't need college. Um, it hadn't occurred to him, this person who's been in Ivy league uh, education, his entire adult life, either as a student or post-grad or uh, teaching that people have complicated lives um, and, <laughs> you know, and have the, have issues that have nothing to do with like uh, choice. So, but right. I, I run into that kind of mindset in publishing all of the time. Um, 
because they have these sort of most of the people who work in publishing come from Harvard or Yale or whatever. And there's this sort of family drive, the legacy students and that sort of thing that they just don't know that it's possible to have a sort of complicated existence. You know, it's, <laughs> it's funny to me. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it has to be funny or else it's like <laughs> just fucking sad. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I've been in situations where it was truly like, I, I, it left me speechless in terms of my reality and someone else's. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Like, I feel like, yes, like taking two years off to write, like I've had a day today where I was up and, you know, just like writing. And I was like, oh my God, people just like live this life. <laughs> like, like they just like make a pot of coffee and have the time and space and energy to like create something that's like truly wild to me like I was like beside myself today like wow like can you imagine <laughs> like not having like being measured by something different yeah. um than my productivity as a brown first generation person mm -hmm. here um having the space and people supporting my voice in a way that's not performative mm -hmm. or uh, I'm expected to, um, you know, play different roles in a work environment um, that some that I didn't really consent to um, because people won't take diversity and inclusion training, <laughs> even though uh, like other people yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, if you know the problem and if you've heard it and if it's been talked about for years and there's hard data for those of you who need the hard data um, to tell everyone, you know, to tell the people, to tell people what they already know about something, then do you just not care about changing it? Yeah. Yeah. Or... I mean, that's the thing. The, the, the whole <laughs> sort of like refusing to take diversity training is kind of funny to me because, you know, the people say this thing all the time about how reading builds empathy. And I really think that people who, who work within <laughs> books think that, like they believe that. They believe because mm. they read some fucking Tolstoy that they understand you know, peasants or whatever. Like, I don't know what they think, but, um, but that they think that they have the sort of natural empathy from, you know, their, their artistic, uh, experiences and exposure that they don't have to think about, you know, how they mindlessly, um, offend somebody or mistreat them or overlook them. They, I think that that's sort of weirdly part of, you know, in the way of like, you know, so one of the, it was so much worse for women just, you know, 15 years ago when, when I was working in Bookslet and the, so the condescending um, tone that men took when they were talking about women writers was so much more just like on the surface. Um, but if you would try to say, you know, maybe you hate, fucking hate women and maybe you should think about that, like they were it was astounding to them that there would be a question on that level. It's just like, no, I'm, I'm fine. And you know, anyway, I can talk about this forever, but, uh, but it does, they just seen they, it, the, this, the lack of self-reflection or, um, 
uh, a self-awareness or interrogation it has been part of you know publishing forever and ever and ever right it's like all these critical thinkers man <laughs> they're just critically thinking about the wrong things i guess I, who's to say but we shouldn't be you know i shouldn't be looked to to fix mm -hmm. all that um just because my identity and um you know is a part of that 14% that you shouldn't want to lose us um because we're going in knowing at some in some ways the the odds are against us mm -hmm. to be here and have historically been against us so to then hire and not mentor and think that hiring is enough truly astounds mm -hmm. me. Um, and, you know, in terms of like how this affects, um, you know, what, like how this affects who gets published. I mean, it's kind of like hard to, to calculate. I mean, if you get editorial assistants that are white, that support editors that are white, that support senior editors that are white, and have an all-white marketing and publicity team, how could we possibly know the true effect of that? Like, what gets left behind in the story or what narratives change? Um, like, it's not, it's not something we can calculate. Like what audiences are getting left behind when we don't get to gatekeep our own stories or rather like what is getting let in? Um, like how is it shaping the narrative, not only of literature, but of how literature mm -hmm. is handled? Like there are two separate conversations that we should be having. Um, and shouldn't we be looking at who is a part of the process just as much as, what's in the mm -hmm. manuscripts. Um, those should all be factors in which we're discussing openly and, you know, not just the folks of color, you know, not just being discussed when the folks of color leave the industry um, and then wondering why and having these think pieces come out. It's like, how can you support them on staff now? And also like, how are you, how is your support of them broadly helping mm -hmm. literature? Yeah. And because we know what's been happening, you know, there's, again, the hard data of what it actually looks like. Um, so what are you going to do now? Yeah, because I do think that there is a direct relationship between the lack of diversity and in, within the, the more powerful positions of publishing and then what gets published in the sense of like, you know, definitely probably well in every publishing company i am sure they are having conversations about we need to diversify our lists right we need we need to include mm. so many x number writers of color so many women so many queer writers etc uh in if only in order to avoid sort of public shaming um and mm. but i then i think what stories those types of people choose um, are going to be, I mean, there's a reason why I think so many books 
by writers of color that are coming out in major publishers these days are essentially just tales of suffering. Like, because that's what white people want to hear <laughs> about what it's like to be um, a person of color in, in this. They just like, it must be terrible. Please tell me how terrible it is so I can feel bad about it. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I think it not only sort of re- sort of restricts the number of uh, of non-white, non-male, non-straight uh, writers that are sort of uh, published and, and nurtured within the system, but also the kinds of stories um, that they are allowed to tell. Oh, man. I've listened to enough white male writers talk, you know, read aloud from how they paint just like the female perspective. <laughs> <laughs> like to last a lifetime, honestly, or, you know, it's just like it fuels me as a writer. Um, it frustrates me as someone in the end, you know, who had to be a part of the mm-hmm. industry of it all. Um Again, like as a writer, I can take that and be like, okay, if this this dude coming in who has had residencies abroad and has, you know, been published here, 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 and here and won't mm-hmm. let you forget it, um, can move forward as a writer, then yeah. fuck. <laughs> like, okay, like here I go, you know, let's 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 talk about this ancestral trauma that this man Mm -hmm. will never know. Um, and you know, I'm a better person for it. Um, I'm a better person for it as a writer and and as a worker, because I have studied whiteness. Um, dare I say, have a PhD, (laughs) um, unwillingly, uh, been taught. Um, and so, you know, again, it's this intricate dance, but, you know, I, I just don't see it happening the other way yet, where people are more conscious of perhaps what they're saying to me um, and, and and going out of their way to make me feel comfortable. I think um, that there's still a long mm-hmm. way to go. And I hope that, you know, talking about it and it, at least <laughs> with some actionable items like, hey, diversity inclusion training, uh, mentorship, you know, like let's get folks that are entry level into the mid level and let's get them to the senior level and then have them hire their own teams. Um, you know, I, I want to, to, to talk in a, in a constructive way because I'm committed to seeing publishing work mm-hmm. itself the fuck out. Um, as a writer and as a person of this world. <laughs> so as as somebody who was in publishing, but also just as, you know, like a writer and a reader, were you seeing the kinds of books that you wanted to read sort of valued and published within the last couple of years? I mean, in terms of poetry, yes. Um, I mean, there's, but there's always, again, like, there's this threshold for being published and I don't entirely agree with the structure of it. Um, and I, again, like I can't possibly know what is lost and who, whose narratives get pushed to the bottom of a, 
of a pile or who perhaps don't have mm-hmm. literary agents to advocate for them and publishing houses only accepting yeah. agented manuscripts um, or a submittable that is overflowing with submissions and not enough manpower to see that through or fair compensation for people's works. I mean, there's a long list of things that prevents people from submitting places. Um so it's hard for me to gauge that. But I mean, I have enjoyed plenty of poetry and I think poetry is kind of leading the way in terms of um, of, of who who sh- who is writing out there, who the contemporary poets are now versus, you know, mm-hmm. five or 10 years ago um, who, in terms of who's actually being published. Um, but again, like still got a long way to go. And if MFA is is the way to have a manuscript, then that cuts yeah. so many people out. Um, so it's hard, it's hard to say. Yeah. The agents thing is a whole other conversation, but, um, but yeah, the, the, the setup of, um, requiring agents in order to have, uh, even be sort of looked at within the, uh, any of the publishers. I mean, most of the independents, you have to have agents now for them too. Um, it's a really aggressively, it's an aggressive form of gatekeeping because agents think very specifically in terms of money. Um, and they mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. a huge sort of influence. I mean, I've had so many nightmare situations with agents. I can't even tell you like conversations where I was just oh going to like God. hang myself at the table, but, uh, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean, it's always geared to what can sell, um, and I think that they are sometimes agents are much more conservative than even publishers are, but you can't mm-hmm. get to the table of a publisher without an agent or without having some sort of level of power. And it just, I think, dumbs down the industry even more of the sort of um, mm. money gatekeeping. Mm, absolutely. And like, think about like, it's in their best interest to get you a bigger mm-hmm. advance. Um, and, and, you know, how, how much are they consulting folks on what the contract actually means? Mm-hmm. Like I've done a lot of like work around contracts, including book contracts and trying to translate, you know, this like crazy, um, language to say the most simple things. Um, and, 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 and I would have never known that had I not worked in contracts before, like how are folks like writers of color and, and able to, to defend for themselves mm-hmm. when, they're not even sure what <laughs> perhaps is being said. I mean, you're just excited to be published. Um, so, yeah. So that's just a potential to be taken advantage of. Yeah, I feel like this attitude that we should just be grateful um, when so right. many and, and when so many writers are fleeced on a regular basis. Like I was ripped off by my publisher, by one of my publishers, and um, after it happened, people came to me with stories of. of of their being ripped off by the same publisher, but it's not nothing spoken out loud. You can't complain because your career will be dead. If you mm-hmm. say anything in public, um, like people will use it against you. And what it allows, you know, people who are just grateful to be published, who are excited, who are naive, who don't understand contract language, whose agents are not looking out for them to just be fed to the wolves again and again and again. And, you know, I heard horror stories about these people um, that I had signed with, but of course only after I had been fucked with. (laughs) Um, And and that's fascinating to me um, that 
it's not it, it's not an industry that takes care of each other. Um, that there right. it sort of touts this sort of literary community thing, but nobody took me aside before uh, I signed that contract and said, "Hey, there's some shit you should know." Um, and that to me is right. And whose interest isn't getting like a percentage yeah. of, <laughs> like you know what I mean, of your yeah. advance? Yeah. Like, and if anyone is listening and wanting me to look at a contract, please get in I touch. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I want to do this work because, again, or look at a resume as well. I've done a lot of work with uh, friends of mine about looking at resumes and helping edit and God, like like covering you know what what's best in a cover letter that's a whole hellscape mm-hmm. um of just like professional development that is not on the table for for someone like me unless i go out and look for it and even then i don't know specifically what i'm looking for i just happen to have had you know exposure to some of this stuff that is not natural for me to have had exposure mm-hmm. to um so how do you how do i succeed when i'm not set up when it's not given to me, when I have to go out there and do the work every single day while also navigating these these places. Um, yeah, and try to be, you know, mentally sound. <laughs> <laughs> and, like happy and like go on vacations and perhaps read something that I enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about the sort of New York City aspect of this about how all publishing companies are in New York um, and the barriers that sort of puts up immediately for a lot of people because um, if you want to work in publishing, you have to live in New York. Um, and New York is one of the most expensive cities in in the world. Um, and it doesn't make sense to me that in this era that it has to be like that. Um, so when people were talking about going back to the Paris Review situation, when people were talking about, well, this is an opportunity uh, to diversify and to bring in new blood and all this stuff. And I was like, move it to Kansas City. Like that, that to me is <laughs> the only radical change. Um, as long as you keep it in New York, um, I think you limit what is possible with something like that. Um, If you want to really change literary culture, move it the fuck out of New York city because it's too expensive. um, And it's such a hard place to live. Um, So what was your situation when you were moving to New York? You said you were 23, 24. Um, Yeah. God, how old is I? Uh, Yes, I was 23 when I moved here and uh, it was just for the six week program. And we lived in the Gramercy dorm rooms, um, which, you know, was truly the only time I'll live below like uh, 80th Street (laughs) (laughs) because I just truly could not afford it. And I was like in like a, a, you know, 23 years old in like a, a twin XL bed sharing a room. Um, and you know, it could, it should have been telling of, of what my living situations would be like, uh, after that program was done. I mean, um, you know, I moved into a four store, fourth floor walk up in Spanish Harlem, um, because this nice lesbian couple had a closet <laughs> on the floor that had a locking door and um, could fit a twin size mattress, uh, air mattress, sorry, and uh, my big suitcase. Um, 
and because they charge me $250 a month, which is like mm-hmm. insanity. Um, and I, I could bear, I, I, I could barely afford it because I was working a part-time in part-time internship for $8 and 75 cents an hour. Um, which is just like, uh, you know, not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, it's like, you know, again, that's not talked about enough. It's like, how are you like, you know, there, I get when I was, you know, working with the internship program, um, you know, a lot of folks asked about remote internships, um, which is something that we, you know, did not offer, um, which I'm not even sure what, what, what that would look like. But it's interesting to think about how we could just maybe it's New York City. I mean, I mean, a lot of it has to do with New York City. It, it, it's not like the city promotes a healthy work life mm-hmm. balance. Um if anything, you step into every room as your job and identifying as your job. Um, and you know, who do you know and who, who knows you and, and just across every single industry, uh, here. Um, and, and I came here to work. Uh, so (laughs) what does that say about me? Um, (laughs) like, and a lot of us that come here to work, I mean, we, we are wide eyed in some, in a lot of ways and naive in a lot of ways. And, um, and I'm definitely not that same person for better or for worse. Well, yeah. I mean, people move to New York because you think that's what you have to do. And in a lot of ways you do. I mean, if you actually want to work in publishing, if you actually want to build a career for yourself as a writer, um, it's not it's not just a cliche. You do actually have to sort of be in the city. Um, it's, it's so much about who you know and... and where you are and where what your education is and that sort of thing like you really have to be there in person be present like go to the party um so much work and mm-hmm. and opportunities are doled out in these casual spaces that you know you have to be able to figure out how to get invited to those spaces um and it's weird to me that that is still sort of not talked about in publishing that it's definitely treated like as a meritocracy. If you have, if you do the work and if you're a good writer, you'll, you'll find a way to publication. Um, and that is absolutely not, that's absolutely not true. Right. And I mean, I'm just bad at parties. I think like (laughs) during, like during my six week, you know, during the summer publishing Institute, there was this, you know, they put us in, in, in these, situations where there's this one like soiree on the time Inc rooftop where it was across from radio city music hall. And like, you know, one of those moments where you're like, Oh man, I'm, you know, I'm in New York. Can you believe Mm -hmm. it? Um, except like I was broke as hell and I was having to interact with HR folks from time Inc. And it was 110 of us on a rooftop trying to get the attention of maybe eight people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, again, broke. Um, and like they had a cheese tray and like free wine. And I had like (laughs) loaded up my fucking, you know, plate with like cheese. And like, I remember like the, maybe the associate director of the NYU, like summer publishing Institute taking me, like telling me as I'm stuffing cheese in my face, like Alexis, like people don't really eat at things at these types of like events, like nor do they like drink really at these events. Um, and I was doing both. Um, (laughs) so it was interesting how that was like such a, 
clash. Like, and of course I wasn't looking at these things as red flags at the time because I'm 23 and freshly here and hungry and grateful, Mm -hmm. um, to be in a city that, you know, more often than not does not love you back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I, I used to mostly go to book expo so that I could go to the parties and put the hors d'oeuvres in my pockets. (laughs) 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 Right. I mean, okay. Like they do know how to put a good charcuterie board together. I I will, I will say that about book publishing. Yeah. yeah. They do, they go, they do a good cheese spread like it's, it's not bad the wine though is uniformly terrible i don't know what's up with that but uh but yeah the food is not bad yeah <laughs> yeah we can agree on all of that um yeah i there's so much within publishing and within book culture in general that is so based in fantasy about um mm-hmm. the life that we're supposed to be leading and and what a writing life even looks like and i do feel like paris review is um particularly guilty of of maintaining that fantasy with their you know with their author profiles and the interviews and it's like what's your process and she's like well i just daydream for five hours like staring into the eyes of my cat and the you know with all that kind of bullshit it's like you know it's not working class writers that they are that they're interviewing um but uh uh i'm i'm going to go on my paris review cia rant now um that i warned you about um uh (laughs) which is like i think the reason why it makes me so angry is we look at and we think about these things as natural like this is a natural um, this is what people want, and this is the sort of natural artistic expression, the natural evolution of of literary culture and publishing. Um, but essentially, this whole literary and artistic culture post war America, which is where a lot of these sort of fantasies are based in, it's like the fantasy of you know when Susan Sontag was was in New York and that sort of thing. Um, it's those cultures only existed because they were funded by the CIA that uh, the Paris review was founded by um, a CIA uh, uh, not agent, but uh, uh, fuck, I forget the the terminology, but um, uh, somebody involved with the CIA and funded by CIA money. Ms. Magazine was funded by CIA money. Uh, Iowa was funded by CIA money. Um, a lot of the abstract expressionist painters were funded with CIA money. Um, and it was to fight um, the the culture war with Soviet Russia um, because Soviet Russia was doing, you know, communal experiences. They, they were doing realist art. Um, and so the CIA wanted to compete with that in the way of creating a more um, appealing artistic culture so heavily focus on the individual individual expression what's what's your individual story um and really aggressively fighting off working class and political writing um and that's been part of the paris review culture from the very beginning was being against um 
solidarity, being against uh, communal work or collaboration. It's a, it's about you as an individual, what your story is. And it's that, that idea of, um, you know, a writer should write what they know. Um, you should have a lived experience, um, which I think is absolute horseshit. But, um, but it, I think we, because we don't think about the fact that this is actually propaganda, it has a political purpose. Um, you know, why are we still, why are we still using this as inspiration? Why is this still the foundation of our fantasies about what a writer is and does? Ah, America's collective. Amnesia. Oh God. What, what a thrill, <laughs> but also like, it seems like then we need a new fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that's how, what it takes to, I don't know, have an idea spread so much that, I mean, also, I mean, this is also not backed by government funding or <laughs> any type of agenda. I mean, it's again, still in their best interest and, you know, white supremacy's best interest to keep us mm-hmm. divided um, and not all collectively um, thinking about f- mm-hmm. a future. Um, but who gets to dream this fantasy up? I mean, I want to do my part, um, but I can't do right, it alone. Yeah. Um, and if the system and the folks at the top refuse to change, then of course this is going to carry on. But at least there's a, a chance for accountability. I mean, just having this conversation, but again, what, what more can be done and, and, and taken off of my plate um, to change the current narrative and the current politics around mm-hmm. book publishing and around a lot of other art forms that we've come to, to respect and to um, take seriously as critiques of art. Yeah. I mean, I'd like, you know, I'd like to dream up a world where I wouldn't have to worry about, where we wouldn't have this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Like where, you know, organizations didn't have to be made in the face of the lack of diversity. But here we are. I mean, it's, it's 2019 now, so... I'm hoping that other folks will take up the torch and, and, and deal with their own messes. Um, seriously. I mean, it's, it's so hard to create anything outside of the sort of dominant literary form because the, not just a sort of lack of financial support, but that is absolutely real. Um, but just a sort of lack of emotional support, I think because people are so geared toward um, identifying themselves with the publishing industry, um, at, you know, in the sense of um, being grateful for being published, being willing to sort of allow themselves to be exploited because they're doing good work, you know, and, and I worked in nonprofits mm-hmm. and I know exactly how that is of just like, yeah, just take my soul, whatever you need. Like, don't, you don't have to pay me for it. Like, I, you know, um, uh, and Industries like this like feed off of people's fantasies about living a meaningful existence within capitalism. And <laughs> and so they and so they don't want to sort of question it or criticize it. Um and so they if you do criticize it, you're looking at it as being kind of crazy. Um and mm-hmm. so creating outside of that space, it's it is hard to build community. Um 
you know, one of the things I do miss about Bookslut is the amazing weirdos who used to write for us. Like people who are so far out of publishing industry types who had no desire to be sort of professional critics or anything, but just wanted to sort of be part of the conversation who, as soon as Bookslut was gone, it's not like they moved to other publications because other publications didn't want them um, because it didn't have, you know, they were looking for insiders, not outsiders. And so that those voices kind of Mm -hmm. immediately went away um, and I talk to some of them sometimes and they, they've stopped writing, which just breaks my heart, uh, mm-hmm. that I, that I can't provide that space for them anymore, but I can't cause I'm fucking ex- exhausted and angry all the time, um, by the end of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that creating these sort of outside spaces, um, and, and really breaking up with these fantasies that we have about publishing and writing um, is an important step to changing the culture. Absolutely agree. Do you, do you think that leaving um, publishing is going to change your writing? Yes, it already has. <laughs> I feel like just like a first day today where I've been writing kind of without, well, I mean, I, I obviously have my workplace poems that will investigate publishing in a different way, in my experience particularly. Um, but I don't have to worry about, you know, my paycheck influencing how I write or um, God, yeah. who I am. Yeah. Um, and that's a huge relief. And I also ha- will have hopefully more emotional and mental um, space and energy to put towards my writing that I don't think I've had as much as I've wanted to over the last, you know, year and a half or so. Um, and, and I think I also am at a point where I'm just like, you know what? I am a fucking poet. Um, and these institutions, I don't need the validation from any institution to tell me that. Um, and that feels good as, you know, me being me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to what this next year will bring and what my life will be like outside of, outside of book publishing. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.